Taiwan elects a new president and China rattles its saber. Having another successful democratic election and as the sole democracy still in a Chinese-speaking country, I think in and of itself, Taiwan deserves attention on that. The U.S. presidential election gets underway. The Iowa caucuses has historically been influential and shaping the race's outcome as the first event in the primary election calendar. And every good romantic comedy about a king taking a new queen has this plot line. But this isn't a movie. It really happened. My name is Natasha, and I'm from Copenhagen. And I'm here to celebrate love. Today is Monday, January 15th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. Elections dominate the news today. In the next year, as we reported last week, nearly half the global population will vote in elections that will largely determine the future of democracy and other consequential events. One such election took place this weekend in Taiwan. Vice President Lei Ching-tai, now president-elect, says he aims to maintain the status quo and will pursue a dialogue with China. Elizabeth Lee has more on reaction to the election results from around the world. With much celebration, history is made in Taiwan. And we do see the DPP winning an unprecedented third term uh, of presidency. Taiwan's next president will be the Democratic Progressive Party's Lai Ching-te. Extremely happy. Exciting, but a little bit disappointed. George Zhang is disappointed because the DPP has lost control of the legislature. President-elect Lai says he aims to build consensus between the parties. The Kuomintang or KMT candidate, Hou Youyi, shares these parting words. We have to be united. We want a united Taiwan. While some KMT supporters fear war with China, DPP supporters say Taiwan's current president has bolstered the island's defenses over the last four years by strengthening ties with like-minded allies. Many of the DPP supporters here say they hope the next president, President Lai, will be able to continue President Tsai Ing-wen's policy of keeping Taiwan on the international stage. In the U.S., President Joe Biden says he does not support Taiwan's independence. House Foreign Affairs Committee leaders say in a statement, we condemn Beijing's attempts to influence the elections through disinformation and military pressure and applaud the people of Taiwan for upholding democratic ideals. Taiwan don't need to be independent again. Taiwan is already a country. We have our government. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Hua Chuanying wrote on the platform X saying the Taiwan question is China's internal affair. Whatever changes take place in Taiwan, the basic fact that there is only one China in the world and Taiwan is part of China will not change. The One China Principle is a solid anchor for peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. We will use exchanges to replace obstructionism, dialogue to replace confrontation, and confidently to pursue exchanges and cooperation with China. But Lai also says his administration will safeguard Taiwan from intimidation from China. Aside from the China issue, there is one more thing to note about this election. Having another successful democratic election and as the sole democracy still in a Chinese-speaking country, I think in and of itself, Taiwan deserves 
attention on that. In May, President-elect Lai will be inaugurated as Taiwan's next president. Elizabeth Lee, VOA News, Taipei, Taiwan. The Taiwan election has major global implications. Relations between China and the United States, for one. Joining us now to talk about this is Timothy Rich. He's a professor of political science and the director of the International Public Opinion Lab at Western Kentucky University. So, basically, Lay made his pitch to voters, this is about war and peace, and that's what they chose, right? Yeah, I, I I think you saw sort of the traditional dynamics in Taiwanese elections play out here. The sort of the role of Taiwanese identity, the role of the the concern about China, and um, pre-election polls were correct that Lai had a narrow lead, and it continued um, through the election. So now, what is his first challenge? Uh, he has to sure. deal with China's so, reaction, I su- assume. I, I think there's a couple of things. I think there's the, you know, you have the expected reaction from China that this was the the their least um, desired candidate to win. Uh, they don't trust the lie. They don't trust the DPP. I mean, but that's all sort of old news. Like, we, we, we knew, they knew that going in. We knew that going in. Uh, I think the big challenge is, I mean, night one, he talked about how he needs to work with other parties. And it's not just because he only won 40% of the vote, which means 60% were not interested in what he had to offer. Um, But that his party doesn't have a legislative majority. And so if there's anything that he's trying to get passed, he needs a dance partner. Um, And that, you know, that dance partner is probably Cohen just party, the TPP. So do you think that's possible? I think that's possible. Um, you know, like I think it's. I think there's going to have to be some sort of deep discussions there on what what can both sides there negotiate and which what what are hard passes. Um, I think there's a few things. I mean, one argument is that the TBP is a relatively young party. I mean, it's only started in 2019. Uh, ideologically, it's. Um, it's less coherent or less structured, so there's probably more wiggle room. Um, there's more likely, you know, um, there's a greater likelihood to try to appeal to the TPP because that would give you just enough votes. I mean, that would give you 52% of the legislature if you can get them to vote with you if you're the DPP. Um, what I imagine you'll probably see is that this is can negotiate on more domestic focused items, perhaps, perhaps military um, um, military reforms or, you know, U.S. Um, um, purchases of U.S. Uh, military um, aid. But beyond that, I'm not exactly sure, like, what that wiggle room is going to be. You know, speaking of the United States, so they were shouting questions at President Biden as he was getting on the helicopter. And, yes. you know, the thing that we could hear him say was, we're not for independence, which is status yeah. quo. Exactly. Um, and I, I understand sort of why you would throw that out there. There, you know, a few reasons. First of all, the DPP historically was a more pro-independence oriented party. They've considerably moderated in the last eight years. Um, they see the status quo as de facto independence, whether or not they say it in those words. Um, so I don't really think 
we shouldn't expect a change in U.S. policy or a change, frankly, out of the DPP from the last administration. Um, and I think this was, you may, may see Biden's actions there, his statement there as a, uh, a reminder of what the status quo is for those who may not have been paying close attention or those that are expecting that China is going to do something big after this election. Are there still people, you know, in the run-up to the election, there were a lot of stories about individuals and segments of society, and there was at one time a fairly large segment of Taiwan that wanted to be Chinese. Does that still exist? Uh, Short answer, not really. So uh, there's a small percentage of the population, it's under 10%, that seem uh, open that, that seem to be supportive of unification, uh, eventual unification or unification right now. But it's it's about 10 percent. It's at best 10 percent. Um, and even survey data over the last 20 some odd years uh, has seen like even under ideal situations, unification support. Is, is low. So it used to be, for example, uh, there was some wonderful survey work that asked, you know, if China were the same politically and economically as us, which I would interpret meaning a democracy, uh, would you be supportive of unification? And for a long time, quite a, a much higher percentage, somewhere 30-ish percent or more would say yes. Uh, in fact, a good, a sizable percentage would say yes to that and say yes to independence if China wouldn't attack which suggests that, you know, identity was a little fluid, things of that nature. Uh, when you ask that same question in more recent years, uh, you don't see a whole lot of people say, I, su- I would support unification even under what sounds like ideal conditions. So um, I, there really isn't an appetite for unification. Um, there may not be a great appetite to poke the bear, to you know, engage in actions that would uh, directly confront China, but unification um, hopes... Chinese hopes that that's that the Taiwanese population is somehow really interested in that or can be won over. It's just not there. Timothy Rich at Western Kentucky University. The process of electing the next U.S. president begins on Monday in the U.S. state of Iowa. Now, Iowa doesn't hold a primary election like most other U.S. states. It holds what's called a caucus or really many caucuses. VOA's Steve Miller explains. On January 15th, the 2024 U.S. presidential election season will officially kick off with the Iowa caucuses. Republican candidates, including Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy, will seek to unseat the current frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, as the party's eventual nominee to challenge incumbent President Joe Biden in November's general election. Unlike traditional primary elections, caucuses originated as an informal gathering of neighbors to discuss and determine internal party matters, and the process still reflects some of this history. Iowa Republicans will meet in each precinct at designated locations in churches, schools, and even private homes. Candidates or their representatives can give speeches and try to convince undecided attendees before everyone hands in their votes with the results tallied and announced immediately. The Iowa delegates will then be proportionally distributed among the candidates based on their share of the statewide vote. Despite providing about 40 out of the nearly 2,500 delegates expected to vote at the Republican National Convention in July, 
The Iowa caucuses has historically been influential in shaping the race's outcome as the first event in the primary election calendar, and candidates have often devoted significant resources to campaigning there. This intense focus on a state with a population of only 3.2 million is rooted in the unique history and structure of the United States. The Constitution makes no provisions for political parties, which are technically independent organizations that can select their nominees in any way they choose, within legal limits. Furthermore, the federal system allows individual states a great deal of control over when and how their elections are conducted, and small states like Iowa and New Hampshire have used their early scheduling to boost their national profile. Nevertheless, recent years have seen increased criticism that these states will disproportionate influence and do not reflect the country's diverse electorate. Following disruptive technical errors in 2020, the Democratic National Committee moved to de-emphasize the party's Iowa caucuses while moving the primaries of more diverse and larger states like South Carolina up in the primary calendar. For now, however, the Republican Party has opted to maintain the status quo in an election cycle already full of unprecedented developments. VOA Steve Miller. Another major election is scheduled for Pakistan on February 8th. But there are many questions about that contest. Will the elections be free and fair as challenges mount for the political party of former Prime Minister Imran Khan? And really, will the election even happen? VOA Pakistan Bureau Chief Sara Zaman reports from Islamabad. Nearly 127 million Pakistanis are registered to vote in the February 8th general elections. But former Prime Minister Imran Khan, the country's most popular leader according to opinion polls, will not be on the ballot. He's in jail on corruption charges and disqualified from running for office. His party, Pakistan Tehreek-e Insaf or PTI, is struggling to campaign freely in public and online. Gohar Khan is chairman of PTI. The most important is the most of the leadership is in hiding. It is actually being arrested. Our political leaders and supporters are actually being harassed. Calling PTI's pre-election troubles a manipulation of the electoral landscape, the country's independent human rights commission has said elections will not be fair, free or credible. Three-time ousted former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif's party is seen as the establishment's favorite. Like Khan now, Sharif was disqualified from running for parliament before the 2018 vote over corruption charges. He had also fallen out of favor with the powerful military. Observers say seeking the military support to come to power has weakened all political parties and eroded voters' faith in elections. Sharif's close aide, Khwaja Asif, agrees. We are all culpable in this tragedy that we are facing. We have to find a solution, and the best way is to find that solution after this election. But uncertainty looms over whether the February vote will happen at all. The general elections have already been delayed nearly three months, and some politicians are pushing to delay the polls a few months more, citing security threats and a harsh winter in parts of the country. The campaign season also lacks its usual hype. Fafans Rizvi says this uncertainty is a big problem. The uncertainty that may lead to low turnout is a red flag. Pakistan's caretaker government says elections will happen as scheduled but that it's up to the Independent Election Commission to ensure the vote is free and fair. Murtaza Solangi is the government's information minister. We cannot be um, monitoring Election Commission of Pakistan. It's not our job. We are there to facilitate in every manner that they may need 
our help, financial, administrative, uh, and security. That we will continue to provide. With PTI losing its iconic election symbol, the bat, on Saturday night, its candidates will now have to run as independents. Sara Zaman, VOA News, Islamabad. We're following these other stories from around the world. Tensions were rising on Sunday as the inauguration of Guatemalan president-elect Bernardo Arevalo was delayed without explanation. The attorney general has tried to strip Arevalo and his vice president-elect, Karen Herrera, of legal immunity, suspend his political party, and annul the election. Arevalo calls it a coup. Heavy rains that hit Brazil's Rio de Janeiro state this weekend have killed at least 11 people, according to the state fire service. The rains flooded streets, the capital city's metro line, and people's homes, bringing down trees and causing landslides. North Korea fired another missile on Sunday. The state media on Monday said it was a new, solid-fuel, hypersonic missile with mid to long range. Sunday marked the 100th day since Hamas launched a terrorist attack into southern Israel. The Jewish state responded with a military operation in Gaza that is ongoing. Hamas is a U.S.-designated terrorist group. VOA's Veronica Balderas Iglesias looks at the toll the war has taken on both the Israeli and Palestinian civilian populations. Jimmy Miller is a relative of a family of four that was taken hostage. Present without food, without light, without water, without any human conditions. Israel's air and ground military operations in Gaza, which aim to destroy the militant group, have killed an estimated 24,000 Palestinians a large percentage of them women and children, according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza. More than 85% of Gaza's population of 2.3 million have been displaced. Among them, Heba Bakker, who is six months pregnant. I will have a child. I am worried about my due date. Where am I going to give birth? How will they treat me when I give birth? Demonstrations in Rome, London and Washington over the weekend also demanded an end to the war. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is not bowing to public pressure. At this moment, what comes first is to cover the expenses of the war and to allow us to conduct the war in the coming year and complete it. On Saturday, Osama Hamdan, a senior official with Hamas, which is a U.S.-designated terror group, said the captives are being taken care of. He also referred to a deal that Israel said it had brokered with Qatar to deliver medicines for the hostages. Them, but we will treat them with whatever medicine is available that reaches our people. And here we thank our brothers in Qatar who took the initiative to send medicines. With no end to the conflict inside, rally goers in Tel Aviv stood in silence for 100 seconds Sunday, representing the number of days hostages have been held captive. Causes in civil and commercial activities were also announced by Israel's Labor Union Federation, marking the solemn benchmark in the war. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News.
Today's international edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. And finally, Denmark's queen, Marguerite, uh, abdicated the throne on Sunday, automatically making her son King Frederick X. With more than 100,000 Danes turning out for the unprecedented event, his accession to the throne makes his wife, Mary, the queen. Now, She's not Danish by birth. She was born on the Australian island of Tasmania. So here's the best part. She and then Prince Frederick met in a chance encounter in a busy Sydney bar during the 2000 Olympic Games. From Sydney, Phil Mercer has the rest of this story fit for a movie script. Before she was a princess, Mary Donaldson graduated with a degree in law and commerce from the University of Tasmania in Australia. A career in advertising and real estate followed. In 2000, she met Denmark's Prince Frederick in a bar in central Sydney during the Olympic Games. The couple was married in May 2004. The couple met at a bar called The Slip-In during the Sydney Olympics in 2000. It's celebrating the coronation of the new Danish king. We've got our Danish flags hung across the room where we normally have our Mexican-themed festoons, so it's flags abundant. We've also got two thrones set up in the uh, main slip-in area. People to come down and take a photo with a crown or a tiara if they please. The bar in central Sydney has over the years become a destination for Danish tourists. My name is Natasha and I'm from Copenhagen. And I'm here to celebrate love and um, with Queen Mary, becoming queen. Mary renounced her Australian citizenship many years ago. But her journey from working in real estate to the Danish royal family has been closely followed here. She will be the world's first Australian-born queen. Filma VOA News, Sydney. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thank you so much for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. In the weeks and months before Bangladesh's parliamentary elections on January 7th, the United States repeatedly called for free and fair elections conducted without violence. Unfortunately, the elections that kept the ruling Awami League party in power and returned Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina for a fifth term were not free or fair, as State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said in a statement, declaring the United States shares the view with other observers. Spokesperson Miller wrote that while the United United States notes the Awami League party won a majority of seats, the elections were marred by violence and by the fact that not all parties participated. The United States, said Mr. Miller, condemns the violence that took place during elections and in the months leading up to it. According to a statement by UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Volker Turk, the violence included arson attacks allegedly committed by opposition parties. Mr. Turk also pointed to the repression that took place by government authorities in the run-up to the elections when thousands of opposition supporters were detained arbitrarily or subjected to intimidation.
The United States remains concerned by the arrests of thousands of political opposition members and by reports of irregularities on Elections Day, spokesperson Miller said. We encourage the government of Bangladesh to credibly investigate reports of violence and to hold perpetrators accountable. We also urge all political parties to reject violence. The United States, declared spokesperson Miller, supports the people of Bangladesh and their aspirations for democracy, freedom of peaceful assembly, and freedom of expression. Looking ahead, the United States remains committed to partnering with Bangladesh to advance our shared vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific, to supporting human rights and civil society in Bangladesh, and to deepening our people-to-people and economic ties. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.